Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. And thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM FM in Asheville. We couldn't do this without you. And if you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave spelled N-A-V-E. I would love to hear from you. And every Saturday morning, I host a writing workshop salon conversation called Imaginative Storm uh, Writing Prompt of the Week Gathering. And if you would like to join it, it's um, always open and there's never a charge. Imaginativestorm.com. So as you know, if you've listened to this show before, I often have people on the show I've known for many years. Sometimes I have people I've never met before. Today, I have someone, Savannah Rodriguez. She and I have known each other for many years. I first got to know her when I was working in the poetry community in Taos. She was a student at the high school, Taos High School, and she was part of the poetry group that was at the high school, as well as very active in the community. And she was one of the leaders. Savannah was terrific on stage and still is. She's a terrific poet. And after high school, she went into nursing. So she's now living in Albuquerque. She's working full-time as a nurse. That's her career. And Lord knows we need more nurses. And we certainly do need more poets. So we have a poet and a nurse on the show today. Savannah Rodriguez, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Hi, Navi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad you had some time to show up and and do this this conversation with me. So when we were chatting just a little bit before we started to record this show, you were telling me about your experiences in Taos as you were starting out in in the poetry world. And so I would love for you just to pick us up right there and let us hear your story about how Someone in Taos goes off to see the big world as a poet and as a healthcare worker. Yes, yes. I've been writing for quite a while. You know, I think I started writing maybe when I was about 10 years old. And I didn't I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I was just writing. And then I started learning about poetry just kind of around. And um, then in high school, you know, I um, there was the poetry class which I thought, oh, let me, let me check that out. That led to poetry team. And it was, it was a beautiful experience. It was one of my favorite times in my life thus far. Um, I worked with um, Francis Hahn, who was my AP literature teacher and poetry slam coach and um, Orion Servio, also my uh, other poetry slam coach and, and grew from there. And it, you know, it turned out it was something I really loved and, and fell into and let me back up a little bit, actually, when I was in the ninth grade, through a mutual friend, I had met Ronald Chavez. He's a writer. He's from um, Santa Rosa, New Mexico. He took me under his wing and he set up a reading for us at Meta Theater. That was the first time I had ever read and shared my poetry out loud. I was 14 or 15 years old. I was so nervous and I'd never been in front of people in that way. You know, it was, I played sports, so I was watched in that way, but poetry was different because you're sharing a part of you to room of strangers. From there, it, it just kind of grew. 
high school. We went to some slams before we participated in the Tales Poetry Festival. We did so much. I feel like we did a lot more. I can't remember. It's been a while now. Nursing school happened after I graduated high school and there was no time to be creative. It was strictly the the sciences and the rules and the books and for, for two years straight. So I kind of fell away from that. And also I had graduated high school, so I didn't really have that community anymore. During that time, I wrote here and there whenever I could. And then after I was done with nursing school and I became a nurse, then my life was just how do I be a nurse? How do I be a good nurse? How do I take care of these people? How do I keep them alive? And I didn't know how to be creative anymore. I feel like my brain switched from uh, creative to um, purely scientific. And then I somehow, I guess, blossomed again and, and found it. I had been invited to read for events. Um, one of the events, I guess the last event that I read for in Taos was for the Taos Land Trust. And my dear friend, Jim O'Donnell, uh, he was working for them at the time. Um, he had asked if I could um, write a poem for the Matanza that they were going to have there. And that was kind of, I think, my break back into the poetry world. I wrote a piece for the event. And after that, it was, you know, trying again, trying again. I kept, I keep running into these um, writer's blocks, but somehow keep figuring my way out. And now that I'm here in Albuquerque, I had many friends over here that were involved in the poetry community. So it was kind of easy to just slide in somewhere. And it's been going very well over here. Well, you know, I would love for you to read the poem you wrote for Jim, if you have it in, uh, available. And you, you would like for me to read the Matanza yeah. piece? Okay. So uh, this is titled Matanza. <clears throat> These are the stories of a woman I once knew. She was made of brick and rolling pins, tough and unrelenting. One time I thought she was soft and I spoke too soon. She chased me across the jardin with her hand ready to meet my backside. My seven-year-old legs could no longer keep up and, well, she caught me. Most times, though, she would sit in her chair in the living room and do word searches and crossword puzzles. She became puzzled at the fogginess that was slowly invading her brain cells. Most mornings, she tried to maintain focus by sitting me down at the kitchen table dipped her yellow fine-tooth comb into this giant pot of water, combed my baby hairs back, slick into a bun so tight I could barely see straight. I remember she enjoyed coloring books. I was always impressed by how methodical she was until one day she could no longer color in the lines. Then she forgot how to hold the crayon. The fog was thickening, her voice faded, and her hands contracted. Those were the only memories I have of her before she became a silent soul stuck inside a helpless shell of a woman who once was. She laid in a nursing home for eight years. Mom and I went and fed her dinner every evening, pureed chicken and nectar thick orange juice. I always wondered what she was thinking or feeling. A blank face, empty eyes, stiff limbs, adult diapers. So I spoke to my mother. My tias and tios, like a young child at bedtime, I dialed their numbers and asked for stories. I wanted more pretty images of her, wanted to know who this woman was. I sat cross-legged in my bed and listened to the storytellers as they told me of the legends of Grandma Rebecca. They told me about the Matanza, 
a family affair, a primal experience that took place so she could feed her children in the winter. Grandpa John raised a pig until he was fat and fluffy, and on the appointed morning, my Tio Tommy carefully and confidently walked over to the pig, and with the blunt end of the axe, delivered a hard blow to the pig's forehead. But it wasn't enough. He still wiggled and squealed, so Grandma Rebecca hopped to the barbed wire fence, grabbed the pig by its front legs, knife in hands, and with all the force of her aging body, penetrated into the pig's heart. She took an ear of corn and shoved it into the puncture site to stop the blood from draining until it was time. The family surrounded the pig, laid him on a raised wooden slab, spread potato sacks across its body, poured steaming hot water on top of them, and let him soak. Each of them took up knives and shaved the pig bare. The hombres cut him from head to toe, drained the blood, separated skin from bone. The mujeres cooked and spiced and stirred, boiled blood caldo. From the kitchen, grandma would yell, save me the head, making sure that nothing was wasted. Every organ used tongue and feet. This death was not in vain. My tia told me that later that day, she opened the oven only to find a head with eyes staring at her. Then she didn't eat meat for a while after that. Mom told me that months later, the children sat at the kitchen table, cracking open piñon to add to the empanadas de lengua that would be served for Christmas. Grandma canned the organs and stored them in the food cellar, filled those turquoise morale cans with manteca for later cooking. For generations, the matanza was survival. For years, she tried to survive on whatever memory she had left. So I say gracias, abuela, for teaching your children this tradition and for sustaining yourself and this family for as long as you could. Well, Savannah Rodriguez, you have not lost your touch. Thank you very <laughs> much for that piece. When you read that story, when you wrote it, when you drop into it as a performer, as you just did, what are some of the sensibilities of the New Mexico atmosphere that come into your imagination? What is it about New Mexico and you that you embrace? I really have this burning pride of being a Northern New Mexican woman. And this piece really expressed the importance of tradition and culture, um, especially in the family and especially with these families that grew up very, very poor and one animal had to last the rest of the year because they didn't have the money. It takes me back, you know, it takes me back to when my grandmother was alive to their house, which now my mom lives in and she's on the property that this took place. So I'm reading this poem and I'm seeing my grandma and I'm seeing the clothes she's wearing and I'm seeing what she may have looked like when she was a little younger and, and I guess fit enough to straddle a pig. <laughs> I feel like the, the stories that were told to me became a memory for me. I wasn't there. I wasn't even born yet. I wasn't even thought of yet, but I could see it. I could feel her. You grew up in Penasco. Can you tell us a bit about what that was like? That's a rural northern New Mexico area. Where is it in relationship to Taos for those people who don't know? A lot of people are listening to this in Taos. Many are listening to it in Asheville. So those in Asheville would know the Asheville region 
maybe not the New Mexico region. So what about that little town? Oh, it is tiny. It is tiny and very unique. It is just hidden. It's only about 25 minutes from Taos. There's like one main road <laughs> and there's a family dollar and like a gas station or two. And a lot of families have been there for generations. There's not too many people that move there. It's an old family town is what, what it makes me think of. My mom, she moved back there about six years ago. She bought my grandparents' home. And so it's great to go back home into the house I was partially raised in. Do you think that house will stay in your life as you grow older? Yes. Yes, that'll that'll be a, a family home for hopefully generations to come. Well, I imagine that you will be one who contributes to the family that continues to live there. I think you mm -hmm. have a great relationship and with your work and and with your man and and all of the rest of it. So I'm curious about the current life you're living in Albuquerque. Tell us about that. Ooh, that was a big transition for a little small town mountain girl. I had traveled to cities before, but never lived in one. And this isn't the biggest city from small town Pinasco to small town Taos to city of Albuquerque. Taos to Albuquerque was definitely a big change. In larger places, you have to search for that sense of community because there's more people. And at first, when we first moved here, I felt a little lonely and I expected that because I didn't know that many people. But once you start meeting people and becoming friends, it starts getting really tight. The pride to be New Mexican here and to be Burqueño is very obvious. <laughs> and it's really nice to see. The great thing about it, too, is that there's also quite a bit of people that are not from here. But they're not just from like surrounding areas. They're from different countries. I have a really dear friend that I've met through work. She's from Tanzania. Where, how, how did that happen? How did I just happen to meet someone from there? And I'm learning about her life and her culture. And it's a lot of fun. And that's a big reason why I wanted to leave home and see the world is to meet new people and to learn new things and experience different cultures and different languages. And this has been a really good, at least first stepping stone um, into doing that. Before we moved here, I, I've, I've loved to travel. I went to Israel. I went to Cuba. I went to Mexico. Getting to see these different places and meet new people, I, I love that. That's just a part of who I am. And I had, to, I had to leave the nest to do it. And my mom has a lot to do with that. When I was younger, she would always tell me, you need to go explore the world. You need to see things. And one thing I remember, small towns, it seems like people tend to stay. It's home. Families are there and stuff. But she always told me, you need to you need to get out and you need to see the world. And don't be like your cousins and stay stuck to their mama's chichi. <laughs> so, uh, so I didn't. <laughs> you went to school in Taos, UNM, for your, your nursing degree. And you mm -hmm. became an RN. And then you've now gone on to school for your bachelor's degree. What was it like for you to finally get into nursing and then arrive at the pandemic because you were one of those nurses we clapped for and all of the healthcare workers that everybody cheered on during during that time what have you learned how has it informed your life 
what kind of changes have you made in terms of how you see your future and and even with your poetry? Nursing has, interestingly enough, fueled my writing or rather branched it. I think I tended to write a lot more just about like my culture, tradition, where I'm from, who I am, my identity, food. And it ended up becoming an outlet for me to process a sort of therapy because nursing's much harder than I could have ever imagined. And then the pandemic happened. At that time, again, there was really no time to be creative. And I remember being so scared and so stressed that I, oh, so stressed and so tired and couldn't really find time to be creative. So it really wasn't until maybe the end of 2021 when I sat down and said, I have to write something. I need to write something down because I can't, I can't do anything else. This is too hard. We lost too many people too fast. Then after moving to Albuquerque, this unit that I work in right now, it's a medical cardiac ICU. This hospital is a level one trauma center, and some of the sickest people are in this unit. When I started here, it, it was definitely exactly the type of place I wanted to be in. And again, I did not expect how much it would take a toll on me. So I got to writing again. That's just where it goes. Whatever thing I need to process, writing makes it a lot better. And then I get to turn it into a piece of art. You said you were scared during the pandemic. You chose scared over afraid. Scared seems a little bit more electric. Scared you most during the pandemic? The first thing I remember was being scared because we didn't really understand what this was yet. I'm not a virologist. I'm just a nurse. And they didn't know yet. So they're studying it. And we're just over here doing what we're told still and taking care of people, which is my job. And hoping that we don't get sick and hoping that this person doesn't die from this unknown virus. And we're afraid to come home and bring it to our families and infect them and potentially kill them or just just that spread. It was just terrifying. We didn't know what to do yet, but we had to go to work because that was our career. That was what we had to do to bring money home. And we just weren't sure if we were safe. There was a lot of uncertainty during that time. Do you have a, a pandemic story of great success, something that you were able to participate in that had a good outcome? We've heard so many terrible outcomes. Just on the opposite side of that must be some good ones. Do you have one of those stories? I don't think I've actually written a, a happy nurse poem. <laughs> not, not yet. There is a lot of death in the, the line of work I'm in, because I, I do happen to take care of very, very critical patients. And like I said, the unit I live in, a lot of them tend to not make it. There's there's quite a bit of death on the unit. But once in a while, there is someone you, you get to help, and there is someone that gets to continue their life and be a mother, a father, brother, sister. You know, they they get to continue. Even though it's rare, the reward from that is very powerful. Do you have any poetry that you've written about nursing that we could hear now? Never thought I would share this one, but I'm going to do it. <clears throat> Bob was blue when he showed up. Purple lips and cold limbs. Bob died this morning, then came back. And we joked about it. Bob made bad jokes, and we laughed about it. Bob's wife wore a pink cardigan, a pink shirt, and a pink mask. 
I don't know where I'd be without her, Bob said. As she circled his bed and fixed his blankets and fluffed his pillows and held his urinal and fed him lunch and rubbed his arm and handed him his toothbrush and glasses and newspaper. Then Bob said he didn't feel good and couldn't breathe and was nauseous and had to sit up. Bob was turning bluer and stopped talking to me and lost his pulse. So we laid him flat and the other nurse started pressing on his chest and I pressed the blue button and people ran in the room and doctors gave us orders and we pushed Epi and we pushed Epi. They stuck a tube down his throat. Then I climbed onto the bed and I started pressing on his chest and I counted and I counted. Then we checked for a pulse, but Bob didn't have one. So I pressed and I counted and I was tired and sweating, but I couldn't stop Bob. I won't stop Bob. And I looked over and said to the other nurse, I need help, I'm getting tired. I won't stop Bob. I looked at his face gray and blue eyes red and dead. Then someone came and started pressing on his chest and I pushed oxygen into his lungs, but Bob wasn't coming back. The priest laid his hands on his head. So after 30 minutes, we stopped. Bob's wife came back in, walked slowly to him with her hand out, reaching, voice breaking, I'll see you soon. And I rubbed her back as my eyes filled with tears. And she thanked me for doing everything I could. And then I walked out. And when they left, I went in and said, sorry, Bob. And we put blue Bob in a bag. Then Bob was gone and they cleaned the room and we waited for a new patient. That sums up the immediacy of that whole experience with you. That happened over and over again, I bet, in one form or another, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now that the pandemic, even though it's still here, at least COVID-19 still here. It may not be as pandemic as it once was. It may be an epidemic now. What's going on with it? What's your report to people listening about how the rhythm of this experience, COVID-19 pandemic, epidemic, still continues to affect your world as a professional? You know, given that this was a thing that made people very sick, COVID affected the entire world and every single system. Obviously, a very heavy weight of that was on healthcare because that's where they went because they were sick. And now it's not the only thing that's around. And even though people are still sick and they're still dying, that's not the main thing that's killing them. So the numbers are lower and they're still out there. We still have COVID patients in the unit, but it is really nice that something changed because we never knew if it was going to change. We didn't know if a vaccine was going to work. And of course, with viruses, what happens, different strains keep coming up. People aren't dropping like flies the way they were. And that's nice because we at least have a little bit of control over that. The light at the end of the tunnel. Earlier, you said that you now have returned to poetry or not returned, but you've picked it back up. Call it what you like. Tell us about that awareness. You said you weren't able to be creative and write. And then it started to happen for you. When did you first start to notice that? And from there, I would like for you to pick a couple of pieces of poetry you've written, and we would love to hear that. So how did it all come back in focus for you? It came back in focus for me more after I moved to Albuquerque because there was more, there was more mics, more poetry readings. There, there wasn't too much in Taos anymore when I left. Like I said, I did have a few times where I did go and read for some people where I got invited to read the Taos Storytelling Festival. I've done that the, the past two years. 
and then after I moved here and, you know, reconnected with um, some poetry friends that I had over here, a friend of mine had invited me to um, this open mic. It happens every first Wednesday of the month um, at Tractor Brewing Wells Park, just a little brewery over here in Albuquerque. And a good friend of mine, Damian Flores, actually is the um, host for it. He's been a host for many, many years. I started just performing at the open mic and it felt good. It felt good to be on stage again. It felt good to be writing again. This last year, I was invited to Taos Storytelling Festival. So that was actually my first time back in Taos uh, since I'd moved. And that was a fantastic reading as well. Another big thing actually that happened this last year, uh, my my friend who I mentioned earlier, Jim O'Donnell, he's um, a freelance writer and he was writing an article for El Palacio magazine, for uh, New Mexico magazine. And the article was on the Manitos, which I recently learned about this. I'd never heard about them. The Manitos were a um, group of people, my grandparents' generation and previous to that, they were migrant workers. They would leave New Mexico, go to Colorado, Wyoming to go work because there was no work here in the state. And he was writing the article on this and he says, hey, do you have a poem that would fit for this article? I said, no, but I'll work on one. And I remembered my mom telling me about my grandparents and my uncles going to Colorado. And so I, you know, I did another thing where I called them up and I, I interviewed my uncle Leroy actually. And um, I wrote a poem for the article and it got published last summer, July 2022. So that was my first time being published in a magazine. So that was really exciting. So it's called Summers in Los Campos, dedicated to my tío Leroy. Summer is here, y ya nos vamos a Colorado. Tío Ezequiel, Tia Sofia, and the rest of the crew están esperando. I change into my Levi's that I bought with last year's potato harvest money. Grab my big hat and long sleeves. Estoy listo. We left home when school was finished, when the air was hot and dry, when there was no work and welfare ran out. So we all hopped into the back of the troca and we were on our way. I was six years old the first time I went to the fields. Too little to hold the hoe, so I watched, learned, understood what work was and the value of feria. I walked up and down the rows, up to all the sweaty trabajadores, Chicanos from all over the place, and offered them daisy cups of water for one penny a pop. Back home, there was much time to practice in our gardens. I looked forward to the next job, next town, next field. During the harvest, we went to Monte Vista, filled a thousand sacks of papas a day for 50 bucks a week. I'd clean acequias on the weekend for 50 cents an hour for pencils and paper and pantalones for my siblings. Sometimes on my day off, I'd take the bus into town, Fort Garland to Alamosa, walked half a mile to the swimming pool, bought a burger and a song on the jukebox. For years after I graduated high school and left home to California, soñé de los campos y los extrañé. Picking peaches, ahí in Grand Junction, string beans in La Junta, boxes of watermelon and cantaloupe, buckets of onions, beets and lettuce, farmer's tan, knees and hands stained with dirt. I dreamt of summers in Los Campos. Oh my gosh, beautiful. I bet that was well received on the open mic. It was. The more important one was I, I read it to my uncle and he, I've never seen him cry. He was very happy. 
My goodness, do you have another poem for us? I could listen to these all day, Savannah. I've always loved your work. Even when you were <laughs> just starting out in high school, you would walk up to that mic. And when you walked up there, it, you took over the room with your invitational energy. So you invited us all to be there with you as you experienced I would say performed, but it was more like experience, whatever it was you had written. So you gave us that experience too. So I'm looking forward to the next one. What do you have for us? Uh, this was one, this was a lot of fun. I, um, it's when I was still living in Taos, I came up to Albuquerque to do a workshop with uh, Jimmy Santiago Baca. And the prompt was write a poem about your own funeral, what your own funeral would be like. <laughs> So I had a lot of fun with this. <clears throat> oh, my poor Hita. I can't believe it. No me puedo creer. What my tia said. Why did she get that ring in her nose? Parece una vaca, my other tia thought. I hope she accepted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior and repented, my tío said, clutching his overused Bible. And my mother, clutching my photograph and her rosary beads, she could not stand. The tears too heavy, wet-faced and broken. She wasn't supposed to go before me, she thought. Compadre Jimmy was at all the family funerals and always kissed all the women on the mouth. But this time, his ghost just stopped by and sang the song he always sang for burials. Solo Dios es el hombre feliz. Solo Dios es el hombre feliz. Then my love, Stand there in his blackout suit, angry with his fists clenched. No, he thought, ready to pick a fight with La Muerte and lose. So this is you at your funeral, and you're the main attraction on your way to the grave. Mm -hmm. So what is happening now as you are starting to integrate your, your poetry back into your your life do you think of yourself first as a poet first as a nurse or are you just savannah rodriguez with all the categories that you are enjoying i think it's that last one nave i'm constantly in a period of um changing and growing and learning about myself and figuring out who who i am and who i want to be in my identity and I'm just living, just trying to figure it all out, man. This is a, it's a rough world and we got to find that little bit of light and it's hard sometimes, but it's where we're at right now, you know, just got to figure it out and I am figuring it out. What is hard about the world right now and how you are figuring it out with, with this identity that you have, which to me is a strong identity, it will always increase in strength. What's so difficult mm -hmm. about it right now? And why is that important for you to note? One of the biggest things is that part of my identity is, is a caretaker, is a nurse. And I've now been doing it for a little bit over six years. And I, I joke and I say that like the, the pandemic seems like it added 10 years onto me. And I'm in a place right now where I'm questioning whether or not that's something I still want to do. The thing is, is there's there's not just bedside nursing. So I am currently in the process of trying to branch out and see 
what else is available because there's just so 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 many things that nurses can do and it's not just care for for people i'm excited and i'm also just curious you know i'm i'm tired i'm a little burnt out from the bedside side of nursing but i'm curious that's a big part of who i am is constantly exploring and i need to be exploring everything I like to kind of push the boundaries, see what else is out there. I don't want to just stay where I'm comfortable and safe. I want to go do something that scares me. The first move of that was leaving Taos, just going somewhere else and being in this big, scary city. And and it's not that big and scary. You know, you just, you just got to do it. <laughs> Did you go to New York? It seems like I saw some posts mm-hmm. on Facebook. Tell us about your experience in New York, which is one of the big global cities in the world. There you were. All the way from Penasco, standing in the city. What was that like for you? And who did you go with? And what did you do? And how did you process that city experience? That was a really cool and unique. I've heard that there's no place like New York. And I definitely got that when we went. Myself and my boyfriend, Kevin, both of us had always wanted to go check it out. So there was actually a concert, a Bad Bunny concert. Um, Puerto Rican reggaetonero. We're like, oh, okay, let's go. He's performing in Brooklyn. Let's just make a trip out of that. So I think we were there for maybe a whole week, actually. And we ended up going to a Brooklyn Nets game. And that was my first NBA game. And it was awesome. It was insane. I loved it. It was definitely a big culture shock for me because there's so many people, but like you don't really talk to them. (laughs) And it's funny because in Piascore's house, everybody knows everybody you know, and everybody knows everybody's business. And then you come to Albuquerque and people aren't really saying good morning when you say good morning to them when you pass by in the hall. But OK, I'm not going to take that personally because it's just a big city and you can't say hi to everyone, I guess. And then <laughs> and then New York, it was just like none of that. But it was kind of cool also because it was just like, ooh, I'm kind of nobody here and I like it. The big thing that kind of tripped me out that I, I knew, but I didn't really know until, or understand it until we got there was um, transportation. Whoa, that is a different experience. I am used to having my car and going where I want to go when I want to go and parking. And you can't really do that there. So getting the taxis was funny, but it wasn't like the experience that I thought it would be like in the movies where you're like, hey, taxi, and you, you know, you're yelling for the taxi. No, you have an app now. <laughs> so then the taxi just picks you. It's just like Uber. And that and then being on the subway, that was wild too, because my boyfriend and I really enjoy cinema and so many things take place on a New York subway. I feel like experiences on New York subways are also very unique. And we did spend some time there. And it was funny because the first night we got there, we saw the subway station and we're like, oh, let's just go down and look at it because we'd never seen it. We're about to go down and this huge rat just runs up the stairs and we're like, mm, never mind. Let's just let's just continue where we were going because I don't like rats. Neither of us like rats, but it was a beautiful city and we definitely want to go back. When we do um, travel nursing, we'll absolutely do a travel contract there. The subways in New York are definitely filled with pods of cultural experiences. I've lived there off and on for many years. I don't now, but I have been in New York a lot. And when you first go on the subway, and I'm I'm happy to see that you noticed this, the reputation the subway has, of course, is that everybody just sits there and they're going here to there and it's not much going on. That's not true. You have jokes and people in love and people reading and 
people talking and gossiping and like little meeting pods all in the in the subway cars. So I'm glad you noticed that. Did the city inform any of your poetry? I don't think so. I don't think it did. I probably took my journal because I usually take it everywhere in case I get inspired. But I think I was just having too much fun that I didn't really have time to, to write. And we were just constantly on the go because to get from one place to another, it takes a while. Mm-hmm. I can definitely see down the line how something will will come out of um, an experience in New York because we're definitely going back and not writing a poem about New York would seem foolish. <laughs> well, I would imagine as travel nurses, you can make a contract in New York and they'll give you the housing and the stipends and a lot of the burdens that newcomers would experience when they arrive in the city wouldn't be Mm -hmm. the problems that you would have. You would drop in and you and Kevin would just do your thing and it would be really a tremendous experience, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. So we're getting closer to the end or close. So would you have another poem for us to wind this up? Yes. Yes, I do. This one was written during a workshop with uh, Levi Romero, who I love, by the way. He's fantastic. This was what, maybe two two summers ago or maybe last summer. People always ask me if I have children. Not yet, I say. My partner and I talk about starting a family. He thinks we will have a daughter first. Laila Milagros, we'll call her. My hips keep getting wider as my body gets closer to motherhood, but my mind isn't quite there yet. I think about legacy and teaching my five-year-old nurse how to make tortillas. I'll get her a step stool and a little apron and listen to her ask me, Tia Vanna, why do tortillas look like the moon? And we'll dance cumbias with our sticky masa hands and lick the butter off of our fingers once we've eaten them all. Hmm. I love the way you create such vivid scenes for my imagination and others, I suppose, as well. Do you have another one you can give us? Maybe. While I'm searching for this, I should tell you, Levi Romero, was part of this. They're starting the New Mexico Poetry Anthology. We submitted pieces without our names on them. And the Matanza poem that I read earlier is the one that got chosen. And so I will now be uh, in this volume one of the New Mexico Poetry Anthology, which is very exciting. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm a sucker for Spanish speakers, Spanglish speakers, for tongues that can their R's speakers roll like their rain-stained tractor bodies across fields that plant our survival, buries his shovel deep into the lands of past generations. We come from the same nation, yes. Breath like gods blowing life into Earth's nostrils. Conception begins. Seed by seed, he'll cradle sweet peas, hum them waterways as they grow up. He is the primary creator of El Tiempo de Cosecha, the time of harvest. The ones from the Norte are special. Up from the dust there, built bodies, adobe churches, sacred, sturdy, pebblestone eyes, straw in his veins, crosses across his chest, made from the mother tierra, moist, rolled, and molded by our ancestors, souls. Rose-painted retablo wood, cracked but holy and hand-carved by God, they walked the ranchos at dawn. 
Count the corn stalks with their heartbeats. Uno, dos, tres. We'll climb our way through the hills of adolescence. I beg him to speak, sing lungs filled with alabanzas. He'll call it the sun for me. The power in his voice reaches the rim of the sky, bent his head back. Sol, sal para que adoremos tu luz. I go wild winds when the Spanish spills from his lips like our mother's tears on our wedding day. Oh, how I long for that wedding day. Gown made of corn husks he handpicked one by one. I'll be one hot tamale baked in the red chili blood of our people we survived for each other. At supper he'd bless. Roll his tortilla, roll his eyes back to the aromas of home cooking. Chicharrones, frijoles, maíz y calabacitas. His body would goosebump with every bite. We'll walk the mesa the night of our honeymoon, stand before the heavens, we'll lift the sky, slow dance to the whispers of the cosmos. My corn husks will flow off with the breeze. His mud-made suit would crumble off his shoulders, our tongues dance quicker than our feet do, they two-step together, braided at the bone, bilingual moans, our hips braided so tightly, softly thrusting all the years of patience into me. Oh, chastity was worth it, ribs and teeth grind like wheat into flour, hard he flowers me, sprouts me deep, nails plowing into sun-dried spines, curling toes, pressing heels into dirt, sowing the names of Joaquin y Milagros in my belly. We roll our children into the new energies that glide across the church pews and ranches, breathing new life, sweet peas and tongues along the edges of this world. Mm. What a what a wedding night. Bravo. <laughs> well done. As we close, and you are now fully out in the world, a professional giving great service to many, many people, great comfort. There are probably some young people listening to this show thinking, hmm, is that road available to me as well? Could I follow in Savannah Rodriguez's footsteps, walk down the same trail? A few bits of wisdom maybe for those younger people who are thinking such things? Yeah. I would say definitely if you can, if like the school, like if they're in high school, if their school offers any creative writing or poetry classes, definitely get into that. It is a really tremendous mode of self-therapy and um, also open mics, go to open mics, go to workshops, just put yourself out into the creative world and it will feed you. You don't have to do much except put yourself out there. Am I hearing that piece of advice right? Pretty much. I mean, it's just it's just trying to do it. You know, a lot of people think like, oh, you know, I can't write. I can never read in public. Or, I mean, you don't have to read. You can be what we call page poet. It's just putting some words out there. You don't have to be good. You know, it doesn't matter. Like, what what is good? You know, it's it's your words. It's your experience. It's your life. And... You know, when I remember when I first started, man, some of the stuff I look back at when I was like brand, brand spanking you and like performing poetry, I'm like, I said that in front of people, like who let me do that? That's not even proper grammar, you know? <laughs> so you kind of have the, the freedom with, with poetry too, is you can make up your own damn words. You know, I do. <laughs> and for people who also want to go in a professional direction like you did, anything to say to people who want to leave and go see the world? I think you should do it sometimes very difficult um, for a lot of people to do it 
because especially financially, you know, this, this world is driven by money and it's very, very hard to survive in it. Education is a big one. Definitely education put me in a place where I am now that I am at least, um, you know, comfortable where I have a schedule that allows me to also do things that I like to do, like travel and write. Definitely getting an education early makes it easier. Starting early really helps. It's honestly really like like drive and willpower if you can. And if you have the opportunity to leave and check other things out, to go on a trip, even if it's just for a little bit, like go see the world because I think it's just really important to just take those opportunities. If you get the chance, go see what else is out there because you have no idea what you might like. If education's your thing, get educated. If not, do your thing. Do what makes you happy. Make it work. Well, Savannah Rodriguez, thank you for taking the time to tell us all these great stories. You read your poetry, give us a bit of a sense of the pandemic experience from the from the trenches, from the hospital rooms. And thanks for the inspiration. I appreciate it so much. And I'm glad you're out there still writing poetry. And I have a feeling that's something you'll do for quite a while. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Nave. I miss your face. It's so good to see you and, and hear your voice again. Um, it's been a while since we've seen each other in person, but this is this is fantastic. I hope you're doing so well. Yeah, I am. And thanks. Thanks for that. And again, thanks so much for coming on to the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. And there you go, my friends. My conversation with Savannah Rodriguez. I hope you enjoyed it. One of the things I hope you glean from this conversation, which... I started to realize a bit more as Savannah and I were talking the importance of having people around you when you do your work, when you do your life, the importance of community. I remember all those years ago when Savannah and her group of students were part of the poetry community we had here in Taos. And I'm also thinking about the poetry community I was part of for all those years in Asheville as well. And then, of course, when I was in New York, there was a thriving poetry community there. And since New York is such a big place, there were plenty of venues. The New Eurekan Poets Cafe, for example, the Bowery Poetry Club, and Louder Arts, which was a group that gathered at a place called Bar 13 every Monday night, just off of Union Square. In fact, really, almost wherever you go, you'll find small and large groups of people gathering to focus on whatever their interests are. Bird watchers gather, people who fix cars gather or collect cars, people who enjoy knitting will gather together, the musicians, of course, circle up and play their music, and on and on it goes. Poetry communities are the same. So Taos, Asheville, and New York, they had very different vibes, as you would expect coming from three different regions. And yet what they had in common and what most communities have in common, the communities who gather around a primary interest, you find people who are willing to show up on a regular basis. You find some kind of venue, a house, a, a brew pub, maybe a coffee shop. You find 
the willingness of a core group of people to gather around the person who is willing to say, I'll host it at my house, or willing to say, let's do something on Friday at 7 p.m. and let's pick this coffee shop. It only takes one or two people to call the meeting, to gather the group together. I'm thinking in Taos of Peter Rabbit and Annie McNaughton. They had the Taos Poetry Circus, which went on for 20 years. And even to this day, much of the poetry and writing that goes on in Taos can be traced back to that early work they did. There are plenty of groups here in Taos who focus on writing, and it's a very worthwhile thing. Savannah obviously is still involved in all of that. And then in Asheville, in the early 90s, uh, Laura Hope Gill and Alan Wolf were two of the people who declared venues. Laura Hope Gill declared a venue at Malaprot's Bookstore, which is still thriving in Asheville. At the time, it was much smaller. There was a little cafe in the basement of where Malaprot's is located. And, and Laura Hope Gill led a, an open mic there. And then Alan Wolf was the person who decided to host the Poetry Slam in Asheville. I'm happy to say that I was on the organizing committee that Alan formed, along with his wife, Ginger West, and Lee Lancaster. And the Poetry Slam started in the early 90s, and, and much of what we did back then continues on to this day. Now, obviously, New York City has been a vital literary center for many years, and it has many, many, many different communities throughout the five boroughs. Uh, the groups I enjoyed being a part of, Lynn Prokop was one of the leaders. She founded uh, the Louder Arts Venue. Bob Holman was part of the Bowery Poetry Club. He started that. I think Mahogany Brown, for many years, ran the slam at the New Eurekan Poets Cafe, although the New Eurekan Poets Cafe was a lot more than poetry slam. It was a gathering place and still is a, a go-to place for people, almost a, a shrine, if you will, almost a, going to the mecca of poetry in, in New York, the New Eurekan Poets Cafe. So again, going back to the original people who do these things, it takes very little effort to actually put something together. All you have to do is declare a date, declare a time, and invite a few people over and give them a brief, like come tell a story, or come read some of your written work, or come perform a poem. And most people will show up if they're invited. People love to be invited. People love to be included. Folks like to be heard. So these venues are perfect places for folks to accomplish all of those things. Get invited, be heard, become part of the community, get to know people, build, build out, build friendships, build creative collaborations, and on and on and on it goes. I'm thinking again now of Savannah Rodriguez and the other poets that were there, uh, Juana Certo Concha, who's now working for the Taos News. I think uh, Lila June Johnson was, I think, part of that group. Aaron Badhand was part of the group as well. Uh, Lila June Johnson, I heard, just got her PhD. And Aaron is now living in California, I believe, raising a family and still connected to the poetry world. So these, these folks, like Savannah, who came out of the Taos scene, came because of other people who gathered round. I know she referenced, Savannah referenced the Taos Poetry Festival. 
that was a festival that was founded by David Bearstock in the early 2000s and continued on for quite a number of years. I took it over and managed it for a while. I think we closed that festival down in 2016. Certainly Savannah was there, and I remember how strong she was on the mic. I think I even still have some photographs in my archives of Savannah when she was there on the mic at the Harwood Museum, really delivering her work as she did on this interview. So you know the vibe Savannah brings to the um, emotionalism and the good writing of her, her presentations, as you heard on the show today. Also, you might imagine what it would be like if Savannah had a whole room to, to work in with a, with a microphone and, and everything one needs in order to really be large and invite people to join in the celebration of, of the emotional story, whatever the story it is that she's telling. And I think this idea of gathering together is really important now more than ever. I certainly have no problem with all the technology, the digital space, the new things that are appearing, the change agents, the revolutionary things. Some people are talking quite a bit about chat GPT. It's a way of generating text without writing it. Oh, and it scares some people. Other people are drawn to it. GPT stands for Generator Pre-Trained Transformer Model. No matter how deep we go into artificial intelligence or uh, virtual reality, there's still no substitute for the warmth of a fire, the smell of a fire, the gathering of folks around the soup bowl, ladling it out, having a meal together, a candle in the middle of the table, if you know what I mean. After all, we... I mean, who doesn't love a good conversation? Uh, some intellectual stimulation, some, some friendly bantering, some poetry vibe. And on that note, I'll give you a little poem I wrote. I'm involved in a poetry group. We gather every Saturday morning on Zoom. It's called Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the, of the Week Gathering, and we generate material. So here's a piece I wrote a week or so ago. It's called Blue Fuse Love Song. When you look at the old eye sky, consider why your unfettered urgency breaks you from the uplifting ground. Are we not products of gravity? Did your ability to string heaven and earth together come just after your first step when the sky tumbled across your face? Civilization is always on time with no end and no beginning. Do you want to watch? What clock does earth follow? I once saw sunset colors along the sea down near Charleston, South Carolina, in the blue fuse, long song, low country air between salt marsh and seagulls. The old eye sky came along for the ride, not to hide or fly, only to mingle with the moist sea song air. Must we walk all day? Excuse me, sir. Can you spare two dollars? Thank you for your trouble. The poem I just read would not have existed if it hadn't been for the gathering we have every Saturday morning, the imaginative storm writing prompt of the week gathering. No matter how you gather, where you come from or where you're going to, when you stop along the way and you commune with friends, something interesting will always come out of it. So on that note, thank you ever so much for listening to this show, Twice Five Miles Radio. 
fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM, and thank you, Robin Collier for doing the same in Taos, KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio. Couldn't do any of this without any of of you gathered around, just like the community I was talking about a few minutes ago. And if you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I would love to hear from you. Meanwhile, here's wishing you good fortune in whatever you do in the upcoming next few days and beyond. And I do hope you work your way back around to this show sometime soon. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.